welcome to yet another bonus episode of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. Now, in this episode, I wanted to record this a few weeks ago into October, but there just wasn't time with everything else I was doing. I basically wanted to put this out as another reaction to an article that I found on the box office of Halloween Ends specifically. I will not be talking about the movie itself or giving any kind of stance or critical opinion on that. If you want to go check that out, you can listen to the episode I did on Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. That is over there where there were just a ton of us on there to talk about Halloween Ends. So this brings up, and I know a lot of you that follow me know that I am big on the box office information when it comes to horror movies and just in general. I usually check it weekly to see what's going on, to see what's overperforming to see what's underperforming, all of that. Well, the weekend that Halloween Ends came out, uh, this article is dated October 16th, I came across this article in Deadline, and the title was Halloween Ends, Opening Lower Than Expected with 41 Million Plus. Blame Day and Date Peacock release as sequel is most watched on streamer. And then it just has Sunday box office after it, but you know, they're putting their headline drawing title up front and then afterwards saying, oh yeah, we'll talk about the Sunday box office too. This is a very important topic to discuss and something I want to go into a little bit because I think it's a hot button issue across the board. This article was written by Anthony de Alessandro, and I want to give him full credit for this because I think he's on to something. He's a little bit on a rant, but let's go ahead and go into this. And then I want to break down a little bit of the box office so far in 2022 after I go through this. Okay, so here is the Sunday AM update. There's about 10 million missing from the current theatrical marketplace this weekend. Projections for Universal Blumhouse Miramax Tronkas's Halloween Ends were expected to come in around 55 million, and the 13th sequel in the franchise, originally created by John Carpenter, is settling at 41.2 million after a 13 million Saturday. Now, I'm not going to get into all the nerdy nuts and bolts here when they're comparing it to Fridays and where it's tracking and all that, but let's continue on. Clearly, tracking didn't account for the theatrical day and date factor. Universal says Halloween Ends is the most watched film or series ever on the platform over a two-day period. Numbers weren't provided, but note third-party streaming analytics corp Samba TV measured Halloween Kills smart TV viewership over 30 days last year at 2.8 million. Halloween Ends opening is also 8.2 million less than Halloween Kills, 49.4 million. And that sequel opened at a time where there were more big films in the market. So that's a little data to parse. What do we have here? Halloween Kills premiered at 2.8 million viewers on Peacock. They're saying Halloween Ends is higher than that. That's one piece of this. Second piece is they're saying Halloween Kills came out at 49.4 million as compared to 41.2 million. So better than Ends. And they're saying that Kills had tougher competition than Ends did. If we want to look at what Halloween Kills was going up against, it was going up against a second weekend of No Time to Die. There was also the third weekends of Venom Let There Be Carnage and The Addams Family 2, as well as the debut of The Last Duel. And you still had um, Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings hanging on there as well. So there's a decent amount of big blockbusters there. As far as Ends was concerned, it was going up against the third week of Smile. It was going up against the second week of Lyle Lyle Crocodile, 
the fifth week of The Woman King and the second week of Amsterdam. Uh, not a whole lot going on. I mean, if you look at the second place movie here, it is Smile at $17 million. And those were the only two to cross $10 million that week. Uh, when you look back in 2021, you had Halloween Kills at that higher number. You had No Time to Die just under that at $32 million. You had Venom, Let There Be Carnage at 21. So you had three films that were doing really well. Let's move on through the rest of the article. So I, I don't like the way this sentence is written. So what I'm, I'm going to do is paraphrase it here. Um, it's still profitable gross against the film's $30 million production cost. Although, you know, in these situations, Universal literally has to pay itself among internal departments. Now listen to this. Listen to this nonsense. And this is how accounting works. If you've ever wondered, I am an accountant for a corporate company, and yes, if you've wondered about it, this is how it works. So, uh, it has to pay itself among internal departments, meaning Peacock pays for the streaming rights to Halloween ends. So yes, even though Universal owns the movie, they still have to take that money from Peacock to account for the streaming rights of it. As one Razor Sharp Studio executive points out, it's hard to underestimate the day and date factor. Clearly, despite the fact that Peacock, on which Halloween Ends is also available, is in 15 million paid subscriber homes, a low number next to the competition. So let's think about that for a minute. It's basically just saying, you know, Peacock has a very small number of subscribers when compared to other big streaming services. And I think that's true. It's just based on, you know, the content. I only subscribe to Peacock when I need to watch it for something. So it's a one month, you know, one and done type deal. Universal's theatrical distribution in its date execution and the studio's marketing aren't to blame here. Those departments didn't do anything wrong. Also, don't point a finger at Paramount's third awesome weekend for Smile. Chances are genre fans are seeing both movies. I don't even think Halloween Ends' C-plus cinema score is a reason here. The lowest grade in the recent franchise subset trilogy from David Gordon Green. Now, if you're not aware of cinema score, that is just an exit poll of, you know, how people feel about a movie after they've left the theater. So that's all that's compiling, is compiling the audience score, and they get a C plus. so it's on, you know, a letter grading scale. I'm hearing there were great viewership figures on Halloween Ends on Peacock, so some form of cannibalization of theatrical is taking effect. Riddle me this, Jeff Shell. So you take a branded film deflate its optics by making it day and date with a headlined lower box office number in exchange for financials, streaming viewership, and subscriber numbers which can't be immediately publicly disclosed? Or will be disclosed weeks from now? Or will never? Or will be leaked to the Wall Street Journal? Remember Trolls World Tour near $100 million puffy number, according to sources? And this is done at a time when the theatrical part of the business is starving and lacking product, and when Wall Street is falling out of love with streaming. It doesn't matter that Halloween Ends is going to gross more than Barbarian or Don't Worry Darling. Of course it will. It's a franchise movie. Duh. The point is, money is being left on the table. A reminder that the equity players in Halloween Ends are Blumhouse, Trunkus, and Miramax, who were bought out whole for this experiment. And Universal is only getting a global distribution fee. So what are we saying here? The author is basically saying, you know, Wall Street is saying, you know, streaming is on the decline, and we've got, this is, I mean, Universal doesn't have a whole lot to gain from inflating numbers on Peacock. 
and this is my stance too, I agree wholeheartedly with the author here because what you're saying is you want to tout this number of subscribers. What they are doing is taking this movie, putting it day and date, when almost no one is doing that anymore. We've pretty much stopped doing the day and date. There are even movies that are premiering on Netflix or somewhere else that are having theatrical runs. Look at... I'm going to have to mention it. Look at Terrifier that did the same thing with Screenbox, where it was supposed to launch on Screenbox. It went to a theatrical run first. There's another example, and I'm blanking on what it is right now, but there was something on Netflix that got like three weeks of a theatrical run, and then now it's going to go to Netflix. So at a time when everyone's shifting back towards the theaters, the theater is desperately in need of these big tentpole movies to drive the box office forward, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But we're basically saying streaming's on the downfall, theaters are back on the rise, why are we trying to puff up this number? Are we trying to save Peacock here? Are you trying to justify keeping Peacock around? Is that the whole thing here? Is Peacock in trouble? Which I wouldn't be surprised if it is. I mean, just in line with how the economy is going, how everything is going, would you keep subscribing to these lower subscription services? I mean, my wife and I just went through and we canceled three or four subscription services, Hulu among those, because we just don't use Hulu as much. And we keep our main, like, couple of streaming services, HBO Max, Shudder, uh, Netflix, for now. But there is this big shift of people are trying to save money somewhere. They're not going to have money for all of these streaming services. And thankfully, we might go back to an era where all this stuff is on another streaming service. I hope so. I would much rather have... You know, competition is great. I love competition. But I'd much rather go back to the days where there were just a few of these streaming services, and you could pay for them and essentially get everything. Right now, you're basically paying what you would have for a cable subscription through all of these streaming services, and it's ridiculous, and none of them release physical media. I don't have to get on that horse today. You know, I've got a whole other show where I sit down and talk about physical media with Dave and Nathan, but that's what's happening here. It seems like Universal is trying to save their own butts, But think about the inner workings of this. Universal makes the movie. The article claims, you know, the other three partners in this, Blumhouse and Miramax and whatever, they are just in this, you know, they were bought out of their stake. They're in this to make the movie, and Universal is just distributing it. So Universal has to pay to buy those three companies out on their share of this movie. I mean, Universal is only making a small distribution fee, And then it's making whatever it makes back from the streaming service and from the, you know, specifically to Universal itself, the film distribution company, it's only making that marketing fee and what it pulls in from the box office. So they're they're buying out these companies' interest. They're only profiting on box office marketing fee. And then Peacock has to expense and pay them to put this on their streaming service. And in turn, Peacock can take that number and say, well, look how many streams we got of this movie at this time. Like, Peacock is alive and well. My thing is, there's a lot of password sharing out there. There's a lot of people signing up just to watch this movie. There are people, I don't know if they're counting this on a per-subscriber basis, or if it's a per, you know, viewing, because there are a lot of people watching this multiple times. I watched it twice on Peacock. I did not go to the theater to see this because of how I felt about 
the previous film. But that's that's the thing. You're almost inflating your subscribers. You're saying, look at how many subscribers we drew in this month and how high it went. And look at how much activity we had on this channel. They do the same thing. I am a Notre Dame football fan. And once a year, they put a game specifically on Peacock because, like it or not, uh, Notre Dame is one of the biggest football brands you know, across the country. And they know they're going to pay for that game to watch it. So they do this every year with different things. This is all a game to Peacock. But I'm, I'm going on a tangent here. This is just the inherent problem and what this brings out in me is that I think a lot of these streaming services are dying on the vine. I mean, we've seen some already go down or get close to going down. Even Netflix, the king of the subscription services, is going down. And it's one because of their price and, you know, the amount of money that they've had to spend for years to create content. And two, you know, we're just seeing a decline in subscriptions. We had an all-time high in 2020 in subscriptions. And now it's plummeting because the economy is going bad. People aren't at home. They're not watching as much. Whatever it is, it's just we're at this point where these streaming services are taking hits, and I don't know how long these lesser streaming services are going to be around. I don't know how long you're going to get your Paramount+. Plus. I don't know how long you're going to get your Peacock. I don't know how long you're going to have those. And honestly, I, I mean, if I look at it, I like having that stuff because, you know, in Peacock, what did I watch this time? I did it for a month. Like I said, I watched a football game. I watched Halloween Ends twice. I watched Beast, which I had been wanting to see. And I watched Jurassic World Dominion, which I'd been wanting to see. So it's not without its merits. Uh, where do those things go? I mean, traditionally, they used to go to, like, HBO or something. So I wouldn't mind that. But let's get back into this article and keep going. Essentially, if you think about it, by not going completely theatrical, there's about $5 million which isn't going back to Universal this weekend in pure film rental. Roughly 50% of the picks missing $10 million. Possibly, more will be lost as day-and-date movies have a big drop. Halloween Kills plummeted 71% in its second weekend, and that was on Peacock 2. Halloween Kills, in regards to its $49.4 million opening, generated under a 2 times leg-out factor with $92 million. What that means, that 2 times leg-out factor, is basically it's tracking what kind of legs your film has. And it's tracking to see if you doubled your opening weekend by the end of the theatrical run. Halloween Kills did not. Whatever NBC Universal makes in Peacock subscription fees is theirs to keep, not to share with exhibition. So that's what I'm talking about when they have to pay for the movie. So Peacock or NBC Universal or whatever, that department keeps any kind of money they make on subscriptions. They're not sending back to the distribution arm of Universal or as it's referred to here, Exhibition. Right now, there's a deal going on where you can get Peacock for $19.99 a year. So is NBC Universal banking on more than 250,000 subscribers signing up? Will those subscribers stay? Who's your demo by having Halloween ends go day and date? Older people? Because the 18 to 34 bunch drove most of Halloween ends business at 62%. The conventional wisdom is that streaming subscribers who sign up off movies don't stick. They stick around for the series. That's an important part that you can sign up for a whole year for $20. It seems like most of these streaming services are doing some kind of deal now. And it's just like I said, you know, if you're going to sign up for a month, you're usually not going to be there the next month. So what happens then? If business slows tonight due to word of mouth, it will also be impacted at the same time on the -the over-the-top service. Not exactly a win-win. So it's basically saying here, Halloween Ends isn't getting great word of mouth. 
it's not only going to affect the theater business, it's going to affect the streaming business as well. Furthermore, filmmakers and content creators don't like theatrical day and date. And that's because there's less of a barrier of entry to get into it. You're not having as much of an exclusive access if you're going first day to see a movie. So even if Halloween Ends is one of the few one-offs from Universal, and granted, the studio hasn't been as big offenders as Warner Media, they together, with Focus, do lead all motion picture studios with theatrical releases at 24 for this year, 20 next year. So that, I think, is giving Universal the benefit of the doubt and saying, hey, they're not as bad as Warner Brothers has been with, you know, putting stuff on HBO Max, and that they have a ton of theatrical releases that came out this year and that are coming next year. Read the memo again, Shell. Content creators no gusta theatrical day and date. And for the non-Spanish speakers, they, they don't like theatrical day and date. Uh, Christopher Landon, the director of Universal's Freaky, made clear his disdain yesterday as the studio mishandled this movie. So you've got content creators and you've got filmmakers who don't like day and date. They want it to have its theatrical run. One thing to keep in mind when clocking viewership of Halloween ends is how much was puffed by stolen password accounts. This is what I was talking about earlier. Which happens on streaming. That 30-day viewership figure on Halloween Kills, 2.8 million, in Smart TV Homes last year was off greatly from the 4.1 million who watched Matt Reeves' Batman in its first seven days on HBO Max after its 45-day theatrical run. So think about that for a minute. Is Halloween Kills was right up there front and center, day and date with theaters. The Batman did, you know, HBO's typical 45-day window now, and... It came close to doubling the viewership when it first launched on the series, and that could be people re-watching it. That's a nice thing. As you've watched in the theater, maybe you want to re-watch it for whatever reason. You can do that now. That's the good part of this stuff. I love the you know 45-day or 60-day window to streaming. I think it's great. Let it get its theatrical run. You don't have to tell anybody. The thing with Warner Brothers is we pretty much know that stuff's coming. You don't necessarily have to tell anyone. You can just go out there and say... It'll come to streaming eventually, and we want our theatrical run to go first, and you're going to pick up everyone who's going to go see it at the theater. But I'm getting way off topic here. Let's get back. When it comes to frost streamers right now, it's not about viewership. It's about subscribers. A hard analysis of money gained versus money lost needs to be made clear here. What's the worth in diluting a brand to prop up a struggling streaming service? And I had talked about this earlier, and there's so many streaming services who do. They're discounting their their prices so you can get a discounted rate for a year and there's loopholes in those a lot of times too where you can just keep signing up over and over again and there's that and it's like yeah you've got subscribers versus how many views you get with a movie and it's not the same thing for sure perhaps peacock you just need to go build your own house of dragon warner media wisely learned from the wrongs of practicing the upside down economics of day and date and NBC Universal, I don't know why you haven't learned that yet. Streamers are on the precipice of embracing a theatrical window. For crying out loud, with Netflix and its Glass Onion and Knives Out story experiment, that's it. That was the one I was thinking of. As outgoing NATO president and CEO John Fithian declared at CinemaCon, simultaneous release is dead as a serious business model, and piracy is what killed it. NBC Universal, get with the times. Other diagnostics on Halloween Ends, the third green-directed pick in the series, 
has now matched its predecessor Halloween Kills in regards to its Rotten Tomatoes critical score at 39%. And I'm going to skip and spare you all the demographics that are going on here. Let's go to the last paragraph of this statement. How did tracking miss on Halloween ends? A few things. The Peacock subscriber base is larger than it was a year ago. So that's comparing it to when Halloween Kills launched. Also, with very few films on tracking, New Line's Black Adam being the only one, Halloween Ends just looked better. Last year, there was Dune, Venom, Let There Be Carnage, and No Time to Die keeping Halloween Kills projections intact. In regards to Universal's efforts in respecting a theatrical window, let the record show that Illumination Animation's Minions The Rise of Gru is now the highest grossing of all the Minions and Gru movies at domestic box office with $368.3 million running total in weekend 16. That finally beats Despicable Me 2's $368 million U.S.-Canada gross. How did tracking, which, if I haven't described throughout this, is just a projection of what they think a movie is going to do, it's like the weather forecast. It doesn't always come out right. You know, you can base it on all the information you have. It doesn't mean you're going to get what you say. So they're just saying, how did it miss? Well, there's a lot of things. There's more subscribers. You're also seeing less competition. So with less competition, maybe they thought, oh, this looks better. But either way, they missed on it, and it might be Universal Peacock's fault. Alright, so that is what I wanted to get into with the article. So that's a very interesting piece, and we've been talking back and forth in the community. I know a lot of people have gone back and forth on what's going on with streaming services, what's going on, why aren't there physical media releases, why are these things struggling. There's so many factors And I think it just goes to show, you know, hopefully we're on the right track. I mean, how great would it be? And this was the concept of Hulu when it started, was let's take several companies together, let's merge them into one and start one streaming service. Now, Hulu was mainly for TV for the most part. But, I mean, that was what Fox, ABC, and I think NBC at the time. So it was, you know, all these networks were going to put all our shows on this Hulu thing not too long after they release on TV it's going to be great. It's basically like a DVR that you pay for. But how great would it be if all these other distributors who, and let me tell you how great it is when Disney takes losses at the box office. I love it. Why do I hate on Disney? Because they keep perpetuating the same stuff over and over. Here's another three Marvel movies. Here's another Star Wars movie. Here's another this and that. I just get tired of seeing the same thing dominate over and over, even though I love Star Wars and I love Marvel. Don't get me wrong there. I also don't particularly like those huge conglomerate companies that seemingly have a grasp in every aspect of the market. I don't like that. That's why I root against Disney. But how awesome would it be if you think of the main distributors right now, the major studios? So right now, who you have are the major studios you've got. Uh, NBC Universal or Universal Pictures is their unit. Uh, you've got Paramount Pictures. You've got Warner Brothers Pictures, which also has New Line Cinema. You've got Walt Disney and 20th Century, which go hand in hand. Another reason why I hate Disney is their treatment of 20th Century Studios. You might as well release them back to be independent. Uh, then you have Columbia TriStar, which is the Sony branch. How cool would it be? And I know all these people. I mean, Sony has had crackle forever. But how cool would it be, you know, Warner Brothers is good, Disney is good in their stuff. I mean, good as far as, like, what they have, they're doing good business. Those are probably the top two streamers on the rise right now. How cool would it be if Universal, Paramount, and Sony, and maybe even, you know, a mini-major like Lionsgate or something like that, 
got together and saying, we're going to do one big streaming service for all of our content. We're going to price it fairly. Our movies are going to have, you know, 60-day theatrical windows. How cool would that be to put everything kind of in one place for the rest of the stuff? I mean, Disney's never going to abandon Disney+. Plus. Warner Brothers is never going to abandon HBO Max. But what if they came together and said, streaming times are tough. Let's try to make something comparable with all of our content. And you've got a good case for that because Paramount has a lot of kids stuff from Nickelodeon, you know. If we had Paramount, it's basically because our daughter loves Nickelodeon shows. So you've got that. And then you can add in, you know, you get Universal and all of their movies and their older back catalog. And you get the stuff that comes with Sony where, you know, those ones don't really have a set streaming home. Recently, they've been going to Netflix. I think there's some kind of partnership between Sony and Netflix. You know, they put Uncharted there. They put Morbius there. Whichever way you look at that. And then you have, you know, smaller studios like something like Lionsgate or something. I was going to say MGM, but they are now Amazon-owned. And there's a whole other thing with those. But what if you had that? And maybe you have an indie studio, like A24 or something in there instead of Lionsgate. But either way, the thing with Lionsgate and A24 is those films don't necessarily come to streaming services in a timely manner. Now, I get it. That is a lot of mouths to feed. And you might have to price the subscription rate up. But it might be worth it to go after the bigger studios. And you still have that allure of people who would, you know, rent it on Redbox or rent it on $6.99 rental. Maybe they come to your streaming service instead and see it. I don't know if that makes business sense. Again, that's a lot of mouths to feed. But maybe just, you know, Universal and Paramount and A24 or Lionsgate or something come together and can do something like that. I think that would be cool. I think it would be much more respectful of our money and our time as consumers. But as we know, companies do not have the best interest of our money and time in their main, you know, mission statements. That's not what they're after. So I'm going to close this, and I want to shift to a general horror box office look. I want to take a live look in at how the box office is looking, what surprises have there been so far. You know, we're in November now, so we're almost, you know, I will give a recap of this at the end of the year to see how 2022 shook out. But I want to give a check-in and talk about the box office as a whole, because I don't talk about this a whole lot on the podcast. So for those of you who haven't been tracking and don't look at this weekly and everything like I do, I want to take a look and give you a picture of where we're at. So everyone knows that the box office took a nosedive in 2020 and 2021, obviously. We were way off where we used to be before. But in 2022, we've had some pretty big success stories. So overall total gross of the box office, this is, you know, domestically, U.S. and Canada, what these movies made. Or what, um, sorry, what the entire box office made. So overall, let's look at 2018, 2019. It was pretty consistent from 2015 through 2019, where total box office, we're making $11 billion total at the box office for the entire year. You look at 2020 and you've got 2 million, you know, or 2 billion, 2 billion, 113 million for the entire year, down 81%. Then you go up 112% in 2021 with $4.4 billion at the total box office. Now for 2022, we're not done yet, but we're sitting at 
$6.14 billion. Now that is again going up a large percentage, and we are getting back, but I want to dig into some specific numbers there. First of all, we're not done yet. You have to remember that movies like Black Panther and Avatar and that Knives Out sequel and so many other things that are, you know, smaller in scale are still coming out before the end of the year. So there's a good chance we bump that number up to 7 8 billion, especially with Black Panther. I think Black Panther is going to be a big one, but Avatar could be too. It's just coming out at the end of the year. It's coming out with like 2 weeks left in the year. So I think that will improve before it's all said and done. Here is the sign of a much healthier box office, though. Back in 2019, there were 910 movies released in theaters. And that's pretty comparable to the years that came before it. 2018 was our apex with 993 movies released in theaters. And that includes everything from wide to limited. 2020, we had 456 films theatrically. 2021, we had 439 films theatrically, and this year we're actually at a low, and I don't, we haven't reached this number since 2001. That is 422, that's it. So it is doing much bigger numbers than 2021 and 2020 with less films, and it has half the number of films that 2019 did. So that plays a big part into this. I mean, we're going to look at something called average, which is another thing that the box offices like to track, is on a film-by-film -film average, how much are they making? And it would probably surprise you to find out that we have reached a high partially due to the, you know, there's less films, there's just a dilution of the average when you're throwing 900 films theatrically. But we've reached a high we haven't reached since 2010. 14.5 million average is what, you, what each film is grossing. For comparison, 2020 it was 4.6 million, 2021 it was 10.2 million, so we're up quite a bit from those two. 2019 was the last regular year, and that was 12.48 million. So we are $2 million per film up from 2019, which is a good sign. I think the biggest thing with 2022 are the specific success stories. And if I can talk non-horror for just a second, those are, of course, Top Gun Maverick, which no one saw coming. I mean, you could probably make a guess, but I don't think anyone was anticipating it hitting $716 million in the U.S. and Canada and leading the box office. There's nothing that's going to catch that. I don't think Black Panther has the time to catch that. Top Gun Maverick, you have to remember talking about theatrical day and date. That thing ran forever in theaters. That was like a four-month thing. That was like back in the... You know, old days when movies used to run that far in the theater, and I like that. I like that movies are available longer. We don't need more. Let's make less quality movies that get their chance, they get their legs, and they can run in a movie theater. And people can go back and see them a second time. People don't have to worry about rushing and catching them the first couple weeks for fear of, like, missing out on it being in the theater. Then you have, of course, you know, Doctor Strange and Jurassic World and the Batman and Minions that round up the top five. The important thing to note about this is at number one, you've got a Paramount movie. Number two, you've got a Disney movie. Number three, you have a Universal movie. Number four, you have a Warner Brothers movie. And then you have another Universal at five. But Sony also has a picture at number seven, 
So you've got every one of the five majors are tracking in the top seven. And that's important because I want to go back, and I think I might have talked about this before, but if you look at 2019, we're looking in the top six movies are all Disney movies, are all Walt Disney Studios movies. Then you have number seven, which is, you know, a Spider-Man movie. Funnily enough, three years, it was the same thing, same spot. And then you have yet another Walt Disney movie at number eight. So it is very good when we see this kind of diversity in the box office when everyone gets to have their hit for the year. And I think every studio has had their hit for the year. And remember that Spider-Man at number seven, that came out in December. So that's not including the opening weekends and everything for Spider-Man. Not bad at all. Let's shift and let's talk about horror movies specifically. So, unfortunately, you do have to go all the way to number 12 before you get a horror movie, but it's nope. It's $123 million. And to put this in perspective, back in 2019, since we are comparing the two years, Us came out at $175 million domestically. So it is a bit of a step down, but I think Nope did really well. Now, this is a year when we've had several franchise movies and several anticipated movies come out in the horror genre. But what's at number two? It's Smile. Smile lit the world on fire. You know, it is doing incredible business. It is just shy of $100 million at $99.45 million. That movie is... It, and it's cracked $100 million internationally as well. It is such a success story. And especially something that was made for probably not a lot of money. I mean, I'm looking it up here, and it looks like it was made for just $17 million. Now, I don't know if that includes marketing, but even if you double that to marketing, that's $34 million. It's making an incredible profit. And I think that can't be understood. That is why horror is so tantalizing to these big studios, because when horror is good and when the public is embracing horror movies, you can make them for a little bit of money, and you can make a lot of money. I mean, even if you look at something like Nope, it is budgeted at $68 million, which is a decent amount of money. That's probably, you know, Jordan Peele's budget getting inflated as he does well with movies. But still, it's still profitable, for sure. But my point is you're not sinking several hundred million dollars into a movie in hopes of getting a return of several hundred million dollars. You know, you spend $150 million, you expect to make $500 million, something like that. That would be a good day for you. Here, you could spend $25 million and make, you know, $70 million, and that'd be a good day. Or you could do the micro-budget thing, which I'm going to talk about that too, and how that affects box office returns, but you could do, you know, two, three million dollars on a movie and make back 20 million, and that's a good day as well. Now, next up, you have the black phone at 89 million, and this is where I want to talk about this put in a little money, make a lot of money thing. Now, they spent 16 to 18 million on this movie, and they're pulling back in 89 million domestically. Let's think about that for a minute. Same thing with Smile. It's in that same budget range, right? Here's your gamble with horror. You can put in a few million, one or two, three million, four million, and hope to make 20 million. Or you can put a little more effort into it, like it seems like Blumhouse is doing. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong 
with these lower-budgeted films, and we'll talk about a couple of those and the disappointments. But when you have something like the Black Phone and Smile, it seems to be put a little more effort into it, put a little more money and budget into marketing or whatever. Smile's marketing campaign was incredible. If you haven't seen anything about how Smile was marketed, go look that up. Such a simple marketing campaign, and it was so effective. So think about that. You put a little bit more money into these movies, and you could have a mega hit on your hands. Could you imagine putting $17 million into a movie and making $100 million? Even if you have to adjust for that marketing budget, that's still pretty incredible. And if you spend $10 million on a movie and put $10 million into marketing, and you have a chance to replicate something like the Black Phone did or something like Smile did, I think you'd do it every time because you're talking about massive gains. And yeah, you're not doubling your money end over end as much as you do with these smaller budget films, but you're making a lot more. So that's my two cents on that. Let's continue on. You've got Scream at 23 with 81 million. I'm not going to go into all these. You've got Halloween End sitting at 63 million at number 27. Uh, Don't Worry Darling is at number 32, which is a film that I'm not over the moon about, and I can't believe it made that much money. Maybe it's the Florence Pugh effect. I don't know. Got Barbarian, which is another surprise hit. Smile and Barbarian were complete and utter gut punches and just took the world by storm, and they were such big surprises. Smile had the look of Polaroid or Truth or Dare or something that was going to be thrown out into theaters and fall off, and Smile was so much better than that. And Barbarian was so much better than that. And these movies came out of nowhere, really. I mean, Barbarian especially. You know, Scream we knew coming into the year. The Black Phone we knew coming into the year. Nope, we obviously knew coming into the year. There was hype around those. But there's something special about building a groundswell. And coming out of complete nowhere and being a big success. I mean, Barbarian made $40 million. That's nothing to sneeze at. And those two are possibly the biggest successes of this year as far as box office surprises. I think they really are. And I'm just so happy that both of those hit. I mean, you think about stuff like earlier in the year, we had a couple of disappointments that I'm sure I'll get through here. Uh, Something like X or something like The Northmen, which isn't necessarily horror. But these were movies that were propped up and had all this stuff behind them. And they just kind of fell apart. So, uh, it's sad that some of these don't hit. But when they do, we have to be excited and we have to be happy for them. I mean, you don't have to be. You can feel however you want. I'm not going to tell you how to feel. But I think it's just a nice sign when movies that are that solid, regardless of what you think they're you know, great or not great or overrated or any of that, I think you can still say they're solidly made films. Number 40, we have Beast. Don't want to talk about that. Number 41 is The Invitation. Don't want to talk about that. Skipping ahead here, you've got The New Prey for the Devil at 53, which, again, don't really want to talk about that. Number 56 is what I want to talk about, and that is X at only 11 million. This is what I want to talk about with, you know, where you put a little bit of money in, a projected, you know, $1 million budget, and it made $11 million at the domestic box office, not exactly setting the world on fire, and neither does A24. I think people a lot of times like to say, you know, A24 is the top of the horror industry, it makes all this money. A24 typically does not make a lot of money, 
A24 is usually lucky to reach 15 million with their films. You have breakout successes like Everything Everywhere All at Once and other movies along those lines, but A24 just doesn't pump out money. X, I think, is, you know, I've heard someone refer to, you know, they've got this big marketing machine at A24. No, that's a pretty small operation. They're not pumping money out. If they pumped money into X and marketing it the way it should have been, with it being this slasher film that is brutal and everything, I think that movie would have done a lot better business. Also, it could have been, you know, the time of the year it came out. So, that's what I want to talk about with X. It's a shame X didn't do better, because it seems to be generally, you know, there's no division, really, amongst X fans. Everyone kind of likes X or loves X. I haven't seen a whole lot of people who hate X. Bodies, Bodies, Bodies comes in at 58, which is uh, solid for that movie. I think that was better than I was expecting it to. And then we have to talk about, no matter how you feel about the movie, at number 63 is Terrifier 2. This movie was made on a micro-budget of $250 million and has so far made $9.7 million at the box office. Now listen, it's really cool. There's been this groundswell about it, and it's been grown organically in the box office and all that stuff. I am happy for Terrifier 2, even if it's not necessarily my kind of movie. Do I want to see more Terrifier 2-type movies in the theater? I don't. Do I want to see, you know, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey coming out in the theater? No, I don't. I have no interest in that type of stuff. But it's cool to see a success story like that. It really is. And it shows you that, yeah, horror is alive and well in the box office. I'm happy for Terrifier 2, even though it's not my necessarily my kind of movie. It's an astounding success scenario. You think they put in a quarter of what A24 put in, and they made about the same amount of money with Terrifier 2 versus X. That's a big payday. What I'm not happy is, you know, how they withheld this from Screenbox when they pretty much made it seem like, hey, it's going to be in on Screenbox around when it comes out. But I get doing that theatrical. They're doing it right, you know. They're favoring theatrical over the streaming. It just sucks when you sign up for a month of Screenbox and think you're getting Terrifier 2 and you don't. But they did it right. They're ex- they extended their theatrical release so many times and waited until the very end of the month to release it on Screenbox. I think they really, you know, they marketed this thing. And you have to remember that Bloody Disgusting is also behind this. So yeah, maybe that has a little bit of marketing because they're putting it out to their readers. But but Terrifier 1 was pretty well regarded as a cult hit within the horror community. So I think a lot of that had to do with people who were already excited for this thing when it was announced. So bravo to you, Terrifier 2. You did what a lot of movies aren't going to do. And maybe you did pave the way for these micro-budget movies to be in theaters. Just be prepared that not all of them are going to hit, because not all of them have what Terrifier 2 has. And that is, one, a loved previous movie. You know, it's a sequel. And two, you know, everything's not going to be up to that level that was made for $250,000. Moving on from that, very boring. You have Firestarter at 65. All those early year movies that kind of floundered. You have Pearl at 68 with 9 million. This is another underperformer. But if you look at what X made, X is definitely something that appeals to the more general horror fan than anything else. Pearl is much weirder, so it's probably still good that it was just 2 million under what the original made. Uh, neither of those were really going to make a lot of money. 
Then you've got something like Fall at 74. You've got Men at 75, which are very niche movies and the type of thing they do. You've got Orphan First Kill, which was day and date with theatrical and streaming, and that still made $5 million in the theater. Something like The Cursed, which didn't make a whole lot. Uh, you've got, let's see, is there anything else in the top 100? I don't think there is. I think that's all in the top 100. You have to go to 105 to get back to Studio 666 and Crimes of the Future after that. So that's what I want to leave you with is the picture of the box office this year. It's not great. There have certainly been better years for the box office. And I will go over the entire thing from, you know, counting down all the films from the top 100 and giving their box office amounts on the end of the year episode that I do sometime in January. Another thing I want to say, though, is there seems to be some kind of shift going on in the horror industry, and I think a lot of this has to do with something like Terrifier 2. There's a lot of rejection of something like Halloween Ends, which is certainly much... I wouldn't call it an art house film at all. I don't think it is. But it certainly leans to those type of filmgoers, I think, in its appreciation of it, than something like Terrifier 2. But what's in the news? What's making the news cycles? It's very funny when my mom, who knows nothing about horror movies, doesn't know anything like that, is texting me about the Winnie the Pooh horror movie, which I frankly have zero interest in. Um, If you are excited for it, that's absolutely fine. Like what you like. That's exactly what you gotta do. But it's crazy that that is the one that's getting the headlines. And I think you do have something like Terrifier 2 getting headlines. I think a lot of that is the bloody disgusting machine behind it. But I'll leave you with that little note, is that it seems like there is a changing of the guard in horror and what's making big money. I don't know what the next year is going to hold. It seems like people are falling off more and more of these A24-style films and going and wanting to cling to stuff like Halloween Kills, like Terrifier 2. We'll have to see. I think it's going to be a very interesting year to hear people's top tens. And don't worry, I will have again my top 25 of 2022 in January sometime. And start thinking of your list now because I'd like to feature some list on the shows, maybe tally up what the listeners think. And I'm going to push that back a little bit this year. I won't be recording until January and putting that one out. So there's a little bit of more time in there, just the way with the schedule is going to line up for me. Speaking of the schedule, uh, you notice that I did take a week off last week just after all of the October rush that I had going on. This episode is coming out, you know, on the off week, and then there will be another episode featuring Dave Dr. Shock Becker, where we get together and talk about horror auteurs. We each pick two horror directors and give our cases for why we think they're horror auteurs, and Dave goes into a lot of deep film history stuff, as Dave is wont to do. That will be coming out next week, so that'll be back on the regular release schedule, And then finally, because I had mentioned this in the last Giallo episode, in three weeks from now, so next week will be the Autor episode, then there'll be a week off, and then the next week I will feature finally talking about the Critters franchise when I start my deep dive into franchises and going back and watching some of these maybe under-talked about horror franchises and really getting to watch them for the first time, a lot of them. And I will be joined by Nathan Bartlebaugh again from Phantom Galaxy. And we'll be talking about all five Critters movies. 
So that is something to look forward to for sure. That's kind of the roadmap. I'll have two other franchises that I'll tackle in December and in January, and then in mid to late January, you will get that best of 2022 episode. You can find the podcast over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. You can email the show at ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. Or you could find the Facebook group over at Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast over there. You can always call to leave a voicemail at 740-297-6556. And please feel free to give me your thoughts on any of this over there on any of the social media stuff. Send an email, call in. I had a couple of really cool responses to the 2018 episode that I put out in October. And that was from 00 Tim who had called in and was, you know, talking about his feelings on being mean to movies and how you've always been respectful to movies. I haven't played that on the show yet. That might be something I include in like a feedback section of the Critters episode or something maybe. And then I got an email from Sean Smith who was basically going over, you know, his experiences with some overrated movies or things he thinks are overrated. That was a really good email as well, and I appreciate all the feedback. I did get some on social media as well. I really do love getting feedback from everyone and hearing what you think about the episodes, so keep it up. I really appreciate it. With all that being said, keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson.